Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right. Thank you, everybody, for once again for joining me tonight here on Golf Talk Live. Very excited uh, about tonight's shows for a, a couple of reasons. Always uh, get to start off uh, each week with uh, another round of Coach's Corner uh, with a, a great panel, and I've got a, certainly got a great one tonight. Uh, and then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by uh, a special guest. He's actually been on the show before, uh, but it's been a few years, and he's got some new exciting stuff to talk about. I'm talking, of course, talking about Joshua Jacobs. He's the founder and CEO of TGA Premier Sports, uh, which actually covers a, a variety of different sports, but also uh, golf, and he's got some interesting things happening. And uh, so he's going to be joining me on the second half. And then, of course, we're post-masters. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that on the panel here to start things off in just a moment uh, after I introduce the guys, and then we'll get into our, our regular panel discussion um, uh, as we continue on. Uh, but I just want to thank everybody for joining me. Don't forget we're live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central right here on blogtalkradio.com network. And at the end of the show, uh, the closing credits, you'll uh, – get some other great ways that you can tune into the program as well. Um, so let me uh, introduce uh, tonight's panel, and uh, we'll get into the discussion. But first, uh, I forgot, let me uh, remind everybody, of course, we've got a great sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel, golfswing.com. They're going to be sponsoring the season again, uh, the Coach's Corner panel segment. Uh, very excited to have them. Let me tell you a little bit about them, and then I'll introduce the panel at that point. Golfswing.com, with its cutting-edge technology, have teamed up alongside some of the best instructors, coaches, and swing gurus in the business. Together, they have created one of the best video teaching and training online platforms in golf, period. Uh, if you're ready to break 100, 90, 80, or even 70, then join their online video academy and learn from some of the best. Um, join today, watch, practice, and improve your game. Uh, at the end of the show, uh, or actually uh, at the mid-break of the show before my special guest, I'll play a short uh, infomercial ca- uh, clip, if you will, uh, telling you a little bit more about golfswing.com, so make sure you stick around for that. All right, I've uh, got a great panel uh, this evening, as I said, on Coach's Corner. I'm going to introduce the guys. Uh, John Hughes, uh, PGA Master Professional, President of the North Florida PGA Section, uh, also was the recipient of the 2013 PGA America's uh, Horton Smith Award, uh, and also a Golf Tips Magazine Top 30 Instructor. Uh, also on the panel is Peter Agazarian, uh, PGA and TPI Teach Professional with the Taconic Golf Club, also owner of Northeast Golf Performance, and the 2017 Northeast New York PGA Section Player Develop- Development Award recipient. Uh, rounding up the panel, of course, is another John, John Decker, uh, Teach Professional at the New Albany Country Club, and also an instructor with GolfSwing.com. Back in 2015, he was named the Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year, uh, prior uh, to that, he was the prior head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, where he worked under top 100 instructors, uh, Fred Griffin and, of course, the late Phil Rogers. Uh, he's also an author. Uh, his book is called Glorif- uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which has an accompanying Bible study with it, and he's also a great motiv- motivational speaker. 
Um, guys, welcome to Coach's Corner. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Ted. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Ted. Uh, all right. I appreciate it, guys. All right. So we've got two Johns on here. So I, as I was mentioning off here uh, before everybody come on, what I'm going to do just to simplify things, I'm going to uh, start with John Decker uh, and then uh, Peter Agazarian and then John Hughes. I'm going to let you uh, bring up the rear, as they say. And we'll keep it in that order just to make it a little simpler for the audience. And I will, for each John, I will say your full name just so that everybody uh, knows which John I'm referring to. Um, so, Mr. Decker, let's start with you. Um, Postmasters, uh, tell me your thoughts. What did you think of the, the tournament? Well, first of all, Ted, thank you for having me on the show. And Peter and John, I look forward to uh, talking golf with you guys this evening. Uh, the Masters was incredible. I mean, uh, the ratings, uh, I'm, I'm sure, were very good. I have not seen the final numbers. But anytime Tiger Woods is uh, even in the mix, um, you know, we all have to be excited. And he's just – he moves the needle, as they say. And what I was most excited about – and what I was really hoping is I was hoping that Tiger and Phil would be kind of in the last few groups, which Phil wasn't in the last few, but he was still – he made the cut and he was kind of there on Sunday. But but I, li- I wanted to see Tiger go up against the young guns and kind of see how – what would happen. And, and because I think, you know, playing in the in a major – uh, with Tiger, uh, when he's at, when he's on all cylinders, uh, these guys, a lot of these guys who have been winning the last few years, they haven't experienced. So it's great for golf. It was exciting, and I'm sure the viewers really enjoyed it as well. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, a lot of great uh, things. I, I only watched it in, in its entirety. I watched the uh, Sunday, of course, uh, uh, part of the Masters. I didn't see – I got little snippets here and there throughout the weekend, but uh, Sunday was – uh, sat in my chair and and uh, hunkered down and watched the uh, the Sunday round. So it was very very exciting. Um, Peter, something very interesting that I noticed um, was there seemed to be a little bit of a, a collapse. Of course, I'm talking about on Sunday, on hole number 12 with the final groups. Um, obviously, um, Molinari and and Woods were were uh, together, and uh, Tiger made a very very smart decision, which which goes to his mental prowess. Uh, you know, he knew that Molinari was going to be in trouble, um, you know, hitting it uh, in the water. And uh, Tiger ended up playing safe. What do you think about his decision there? Was that Obviously, it was a, a smart move, um, but he left himself uh, a, a very long lag putt. What do you think about his mental capacity on Sunday, and particularly at hole number 12 with that decision of hitting it uh, onto the left side, which was, of course, the opposite side of where the pin was placed for Sunday? I think his poise the whole week was amazing. Um, I was actually there on Wednesday, and uh, it's such mm-hmm. a, I mean, such a small green. And you know, I think from what I understand, he made that club choice on eleven t or on eleven green, really, when he saw right Kapka hit in front of him. Um, so I think there was a, you know, he was aware there was a little more wind there, and I think he just has a. Uh, such a deeper understanding of his own game since going through all the stuff that he's gone through and uh, along with the overall poise that he has and he displayed the entire time. I mean, you can go back to some of the shots he hit earlier that, you know, the the punch shot on, I think, what was it, 11 maybe? They're not even 11. Uh, 
on 10 when he hit it in the, in the stuff and he just right. punched out into the stairway and he was fine with making bogey at that point. Came close to making par, but he made a lot of great choices really that led to yeah. just what, what ended up happening, what ended up transpiring, which was amazing. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I, I think mean, that he honestly, really sh- even that that, yeah, sorry, that green on six and where they had the flag on Sunday on that tabletop, I mean, it's probably the, the tier there on the tabletop is probably six, seven feet high. And whether he intentionally banked it off the the the, the collar on the right-hand side and got it to – maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but there's, right. there's a certain amount of knowledge that he has about – especially that place that probably a lot of those guys just don't. Yeah, and that, that's an interesting – John, that's an interesting um, point. I'm talking, uh, of course, about uh, to John Hughes. Um, a very interesting point, a couple of points, actually, that Peter raised. Um, first off, he mentioned, you know, about Tiger's demeanor throughout the whole tournament. He was very, very relaxed, probably the calmest I've seen him and the most relaxed I've seen him in a very, very long time. Um, nothing Steve, even when he made some bad shots or missed some important putts, it didn't seem to be Tiger of old. Uh, where he would get frustrated. It was a very, it was sort of almost a new tiger, if you will, uh, or a re- rejuvenated tiger. Uh, and then also, um, you know, his, you know, he's always been a pretty good shot maker, but I, I think as Peter um, mentioned, you know, he, he seemed to really make some very good choices um, throughout the tournament and particularly on Sunday. What were your thoughts, John, about the, uh, the Masters overall and uh, the points that, that Peter had raised? I, I agree with you. I think it's the new Tiger, uh, not necessarily an old. It, the, the demeanor he showed throughout the week, I agree with Peter, it, it was just it's something we haven't seen from him yet. It's not the same face we had seen from Tiger in the past, the, the really grin and, and grind it kind of uh, uh, facial expressions were so much different this time, much more accepting of who he is, uh, both as a person and, and as a golfer. It was obvious. And the choices were less, uh, the, the word I would probably use is less forced. Uh, you didn't see him force any shots. In the past, when he right. was younger, you would see him pull out a more aggressive club choice or, or try to make a or more forced effort into creating a shot that, yeah, would probably challenge him, but at the same time would, would challenge the field as well. The, what was interesting was watching him go up 18, knowing he had to make five, and not necessarily the choices he made so much as the execution. I, most people have never seen Tiger purposely make a bogey to win a, a championship in the past that that to me was really interesting as to how he navigated that uh it was it's outside of his demeanor to perform that way and i i think that was probably the only time you saw him out of his comfort zone it was the first time you probably saw him think about wow how, how do i win this tournament it was a fantastic tournament all the way around uh, not only for Tiger, right. but we start seeing whether it's Xander Shoffley or, or uh, any of the others. Uh, start, it, it, you're starting to see the, the new guard and who has the mental capacity to compete at that level consistently. 
Maldonari comes to mind. Uh, seeing Phil make the the cut certainly uh, wasn't a surprise. And in the manner in which he's trying to compete, it, it shows that everybody who's there still has an eye on the prize and then some. Uh, Tiger was fortunate with some mishaps by the rest of the field, but at the same time, he was just so consistent. Uh, I agree with everybody on the panel, John included. It is something we haven't seen in a while, but I would call it it's something that we haven't seen because it's a new Tiger, not an old. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think to John's point earlier um, about, you know, maturity, if you will, I think, you know, and and Peter had also brought this up about, uh, you know, going up against some of the the young guns, if you will. Um, Tiger's 43 now. And, you know, certainly not old, but that's a little bit more mature than, than really what he has been for a while. And I, what I noticed was there was a, a calmness about him, particularly on, I mean, certainly throughout the, the moments that I saw him earlier in, in the tournament, but particularly on Sunday, um, he just seemed to be very, very calm and relaxed. Uh, and that's something that we haven't seen. And that even though he was not in, in the lead at that point, he knew he was in contention. He knew that if he just stuck to his game plan, that he was going to have, if not uh, a continued chance at winning the tournament, um, and he was waiting for you know his moment, if you will, uh, to move forward. What we didn't see was his, Tiger of old, uh, John uh, Decker or uh, John Hughes, sorry, as you had mentioned, um, where he was playing more aggressive, uh, like he has in the past. Uh, you know, picking clubs and that that were uh, would require him to hit a, a more aggressive shot. Uh, he, w- he was much more methodical, almost, uh, I hate to use the analogy, but almost like Nicholas-like. You know, Nicholas was not really an overly aggressive player. He was very, very conservative, but he knew when to sort of step on the gas, if you will. Um, but he, he was very calculated in his, uh, you know, in his shots. And that's what I noticed about Tiger. And obviously, uh, he went on to win his uh, fifth Masters and his 15th Major. And it's going to be interesting to see how he, um, how that propels him uh, for the rest of this uh, season, uh, particularly with the majors. Uh, and he's going to be playing, of course, at the U.S. Open. He's going to be at Pebble Beach this year again, uh, which is a favorite of his, and he's won in the past there. So it'll be very interesting to see how he handles uh, that golf course this season. Um, but I was very impressed with it, and I was glad to see him uh, you know, ultimately win, of course, but I was more importantly, I was just glad to see him uh, in a good frame of mind and, and uh, in good contention and uh, ultimately it paid off for him. Um, but uh, it, it was a good tournament. I enjoyed it. All right, uh, back to John Decker. Uh, we're going to talk about tonight, um, and sort of in, in lieu of, of the Masters tournament, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the short game. And I, I'm going to give you some specific things that I, I want you to talk about, uh, each of you. Um, first off, the, the first category, if you will, is some of the characteristics of great chipping. Uh, obviously, around some of those uh, fast greens, uh, if you don't happen to hit the green, uh, you've, you've got to be a good chipper. And um, there's a few things I'm going to mention. And then, John, I just want you to explain not so much uh, about the technique, but why uh, you might use this particular technique. And the first one, of course, with chipping is one of the, the characteristics is choking down on the grip. Um, another one is uh, uh, sort of a stay open and narrow, if you will, and uh, you want to sort of keep your weight on your forward side 
uh, and ball a bit back in your stance. So I want you to take those three and just talk a little bit about with the first one. And if you forget one of them, just let me know and I'll remind you. But the first one is choking down. Why, why choke down? Um, what's the purpose of that? How does it help uh, to increase your likelihood of being a better chipper? Well, um, it's important that you choke down on the club because it allows you to get closer to the ball and it allows the shaft angle to get more vertical, very much like a putter. Chipping is essentially putting with a lofty club. That's the way I like to explain it. So whether I'm using a six iron, seven, all the way to my pitching wedge, I'm making more of a putting style motion um, up and down, very, not a lot of follow through so that I can hit a shot and, and just barely get it on the green and then let it run to the hole. And obviously, it's a very safe, safe shot. The, getting the weight forward allows you to have the club bottom out in the same spot every time. One of the worst mistakes that you can make in chipping is to have your weight 50-50 because invariably when you do that, you'll never be consistent with where your club hits the ground. So by setting your weight into your left side, it, you're going to be very consistent with your contact and then playing obviously when you play the ball back in the stance. And it's important to understand, you don't need to play it way back I heard Tiger say in a clinic right. one time, when he plays the ball back in his stance, he moves it one ball. So make sure it's not way, way back. But, you know, narrow stance, like you mentioned, when you have a narrow stance, your weight's on the left side, you're standing closer to the ball, you've got the shaft angle more vertical, you're choking down on the club and making that up and down motion. You're essentially turning your seven iron into a putter, and the ball is in the air for just a few feet, and then it's running to the hole. So it's a great shot. It's my favorite shot. Uh, if I miss the green, that's the shot I want to have. You see it a lot at, uh, you see a lot at the, the Masters as well as the British Open, U.S. Open. It's not usually it's kind of gone out of style with the rough around the greens and stuff. But uh, it's a great shot, and, and it's a lost art. You don't see a lot of the young players doing it. They want to tend to flop it. And I always say, why try to right. hit the hero shot when you can hit the – keep it on the ground, especially in crosswinds or high winds. Uh, it's a much safer shot to play. Yeah, and especially with, with the design of Augusta National with the greens, I mean, obviously the, the rough is, is almost non-existent compared to some of the other courses they play throughout the season. Um, and, you know, hitting a flop shot off a really tight lie, uh, which you're going to hit most of the time at Augusta National, uh, is not always going to serve you well, especially for an amateur player. Um, so, you know, a, a chipping, a good, having a good solid chipping technique is going to help. And the other one that I, I, I don't know if you'd mentioned or covered or not was uh, obviously staying open, keeping your stance open, and you mentioned narrow and that. Um, obviously, the reason, the reason why I'm asking this and I'm wanting you to be sort of specific about it is a lot of people, and you made mention of this, John, is a lot of people really don't understand the technique. Um, they see clinics, they see things, but they don't really understand um, what to do, and more importantly, they don't understand the whys. I think the whys are just as important as the what. Um, so talk about why, why do we want to have the, our stance maybe slightly open in most cases? Um, th I think one of the benefits to that is it does allow you to get more weight into your, your left hip uh, when you do that. Um, it's, and then your shoulders, you don't want to have your shoulders open. You want your shoulders and club face kind of on the target line. But uh, being slightly open, you can be square, you know, I'm not – I want to, right. my students to be a little bit open. Obviously, I don't want them to pull their left foot way back. But I find it to be, right. from a comfort standpoint, you, because your hip is kind of a ball and socket joint, it makes it a lot easier to stabilize that weight in the, in the hip. A lot of times people try to put their weight into their front foot 
but really put the weight into your hip. Your hips are weight bearing joints, and that's what if you put the weight in your left hip, and you're you're going to be rock solid every time. You're you're going to hit very nice crisp shots every time. Right. Well said. Um, Peter, uh, I'm going to give you some different ones, uh, of course, um, uh, on this. And, and, and again, um, I understand that there, there might be variations, and, and that's fine. Um, you know, everybody's – all golfers are not the same. Um, but I want you to, to, again, as John had done, not just so much focus on the, the, the tech, uh, technical side of things, but why and, and what people should be looking for. And you'll understand when I say that. Um, the first one here is obviously keeping your head up, uh, making a good club selection choice. Again, it, uh, John mentioned the seven iron, but there are other irons that could be used. Uh, and making sort of a single, what they call a single lever swing. Um, what I want you to do, I guess, Peter, in this scenario is talk about, from a player's standpoint, um, what factors they're going to consider when making club selection, um, number one, and and the actual execution of the shot, what they're looking to, to do. Obviously, they want to getting it close to the hole, but um, you know, if they're off of, uh, maybe a few feet or so off the green, um, maybe even a couple of yards off the green, I want you to factor those in as well. So just sort of give us an idea based on, on those three there um, what a player should be really thinking about and looking at um, in order to make some good chips. Yeah, of course. Um, I really encourage people to embrace, you know, make their choices based off confidence. So if no matter what the circumstances, a yardage, um, I really am encouraging them to make, have that be the decision. You know, if they're unsure of the choice they just made, maybe it's the, maybe it's the incorrect one for them. But within that, the conversation is, what, you know, why is it the confident choice? What's what's their preference? Are they a person that likes to keep the ball on the closer to the ground? Or are they a person that likes to put the ball in the air? And in my experience, it's been one or the other and rarely both. Um, so I, I really right. encourage them to embrace that preference that they feel really confident about and then make their choices from that point, you know, there's people that I've worked with that can be a few feet off the green, but still feel most confident that they're going to get the ball close to the hole with a sandwich for some reason, or you have a completely different person (laughs) with a completely different preference and they're going to take out a five iron and carry the thing, maybe a couple feet just so it gets just onto the green or, you know, or you're going to be, you know, 20 to 30 yards away from the green and still a lot of green in front of you. And again, you're going to have people that want to put it up in the air. There's going to be people that want to take a seven, eight iron out and, and, or a pitching wedge and kind of keep it closer to the ground. So if, if you allow the person to have control of their choices and have an understanding as to why that's the, the good choice for them, then you can really empower their short game to be, all about in the end where the ball is going and just uh, really the practicality of getting it close to the hole because they're feeling confident about their choice and they embrace their own preference. 
Right. And, and the other one I, I mentioned was about keeping the head up. And, and the reason why I say that is a lot of times we'll see that I'm sure we've all um, seen many times uh, over the years with, with some of our students. But for some reason, people just feel like they've got to bury their chin into their chest. And obviously that's going to impede um, the, the motion of the, of the golf swing, regardless of whether it's a full swing or a chip. Um, and, and that's something too that um, do you do anything specific when you're working with students, Peter, that, you know, when you see them, and, and again, I, I realize that, you know, every student's different and, and that, but um, there are so, sort of common fundamentals, if you will, that, that are going to yield success, at, you know, in other words. And if you start seeing students doing things like, like digging their, their chin into their chest and, and not, you know, really getting a lot of momentum or movement through the body, um, what do you try to do? Do you give them cues or do you or help them? Uh, I just create something that uh, reminds them. Ted, I just ask them if they can see the target. Right. And if, if if the answer is no, then the, there needs to be a different approach. But I've seen people do some interesting things, and it just works. <laughs> you know. Right. And, yeah. yeah. And and and, and if the, my Ted, my only thing with stuff like that is that if they can see the target and they have their own unique setup or whatever it might be, I I encourage them to embrace it. And I know it's a little outside the box, but it anything like that that's actually not important for the player distracts them from right. what's actually important. So i rather have right. them have their own unique setup, no matter maybe how far outside the box is, and allow them to keep it simple and have their focus be on what's actually important than adding another thing to the list that isn't important. Right. Understand what I'm saying? Right. If, yep. if it's, if they can't see the target, they can't, and they're having a hard time. That's different. It's a different conversation, but if they can and they, they're getting a good result, I generally don't touch it. Right. Well said. Um, John Hughes, the reason why I, I wanted to be specific about the conversation tonight is, you know, I've, over the years I've done a lot of thinking, you know, traditional teaching, you know, we've, we've got our sort of set in stone with fundamentals, and Peter raises a very, very valid point. I think one of the mistakes that the industry has made, for, and obviously there are certain things that, that do have, certain principles that do have to be followed in order to, to you know, to, to make uh, good solid contact and things like that, but there can be variances on other things. So I want you to talk about, John, the overall chipping, if you will, um, but I want you to look at it from sort of what Peter just talked about. Are we making it, um, in some cases, are we making it too regimented and too many, um, you know, boxes that they've got to check off in order to, in order to do everything right, or can we be more flexible, or do we need to be more flexible and because I think what's happening is people are getting paralyzed um, mentally when they're getting over the ball because they're thinking about so many different things. What are your thoughts? I'm generally asking people very similar to, to Peter, can you envision the shot? And, and as you envision it, what do you look like in that envisionment? Uh, are you knocking it down? Are you putting it up in the air? Everybody's got a little bit different take on it. At the end of the day, you're, the more you try to beat science, the more science beats you up. And when we can right. simplify it down to the core essence for the individual, 
that makes a whole lot of sense when it comes to head head down or head in the chin or whatever. I, I try to dispel the myth that you can't keep your head still. It's almost physically impossible. But what's most important? Right. Uh, the target. Can you look at the target and make practice swings? And can you feel those swings? It gets them away from the mechanical and, and more into the feel of what short game really is. The best short game players in the world are more feel-oriented versus technical. But they always start somewhere mm-hmm. technically as a standardized basis to make all their variations off of. So from a rigidness, from a technicality standpoint of view, there, as an industry I would agree with you. We probably overdo that to a certain extent. I think that comes a lot from the less experienced instructor just trying to go by the book and learn their way around being an instructor, being a good coach. And that's always going to be part of the evolutionary process of the game and bringing in new people and bringing in new coaches or eventual coaches. But at some point, I think everybody reaches a a satis not a satisfaction so much as a comfort level where they've got their basics, whether it's a club choice for a particular lie or having your stance open or closed or the ball way back or just barely back, uh, the hand slightly down or maybe midway down, all in a variation based on the situation they're in. And you can't be doing those things until what I call you put a bunch of stuff in the back of the filing cabinet until you've had some experience working it all out. You vary off those standards throughout experience based on what you've had in the past and what you're predicting what's going to happen for the shot in front of you. The real key is not burying someone in an absolute uh, because sometimes when you say, hey, this is is in cement, you got to do it this way, there may be a physical limitation uh, to both John and Peter's point. There may be a psychological reason why it can't happen. But I think bottom line is, does the situation call for it? All these setup positions allow someone to organically limit or lengthen their swing. Where is the ball? How far is it going to go? What kind of spin is it going to have? Will it release a lot or very little? Uh, all those things matter. But it takes time, and, and that time has to start with a standard that's comfortable for you, that works for you. And then as time marches on, you become more comfortable. You learn your variations. You learn how to feel the shots, not just technically figure them out. And as you learn to feel, that that's the time when you start excelling. You start repeating things in a very positive and successful way. Well said. Um, you know, when you think about it, guys, you know, when I think about instruction, most of the information that we're telling our students is really is, is meant to be as a guide. And, and if you think about this, you know, there's obviously certain fundamentals, but if you look at some great players, as John just talked about, um, you know, everybody has sort of made modifications or adjustments that suits their game. One that comes to mind, and I'm talking about putting now, is Jack Nicholas. If you were to, to isolate his putting posture and his technique compared to what the industry standard would be, 
uh, he would be way out in left field. He always had a very, very open stance. He was kind of hunched over, uh, you know, his club. But it, as to Peter's point, he was able to see his target line and where he wanted the bat. He was able to visualize the shot. So whether he was standing on one foot and, and leaning to the side and, and so forth, he knew what he needed to do in order to accomplish the task at hand. So I'm going to pose this question to all of you and just very quickly uh, a thought or two um, on what you think of this. But uh, the question is this. Should we, when we're teaching, the general fundamentals be used primarily as a guide and should we be fo focusing more with our students on the results? On, in other words, what results do you want and then let's work backwards from that. What do you think, uh, John Decker, we're going to go first and then Peter. That's, a, that's an interesting question because I would, I, it would really, to me, depend on the level of the student. If I have a beginner or someone who's, who's new to the game, obviously getting them into the fundament, I'm not going to be talking results with them. Uh, you know, I might give them some parameters of what a good putt is or a good chip, or how, you know, what a tour player, you know, how close they might get to the hole to, to give them an idea. But um, I, I, really, I really don't, uh, with new players, don't, uh, spend a lot of time with that. Now, if I have someone who's a more advanced player, then obviously we're going to get more into goals. We're going to get more into, you know, uh, uh, their results and, and give them, you know, here's some of the tour stats, you know, whether it's track man numbers, whether it's uh, stats from, you know, how close they hit it to the, to the hole on a hundred, you know, a lot of times I'll say, you know, a hundred yard shot, they'll hit it, at, you know, on average 20 feet from the hole. And so, I, that kind of gives them an idea, an expectation of what a really elite player does. Now, I would never do that with a beginner because I think that's just that's putting the cart before the horse. But um, overall, I think it depends on the level of your of your student. Yeah, I, I agree as well. And Peter, same question to you. You know, are we maybe as an industry at times, uh, and, and to, to John Hughes' point, um, with maybe some of the newer coaches and, and instructors out there, that maybe they're um, spending too much time on the technical side of it and not really um, looking at the, the results and what the student is most comfortable in doing. What, what are your thoughts um, on, on that? Yeah, I, I fully embrace the player as the center. And as long as their style isn't going to inhibit progress, um, that style remains at all times no matter what. And I think as an industry, we're very obsessed with aesthetics and the visual of it. Mm -hmm. And at times it can be destructive, don't get me wrong, but also right. at times that aesthetic is off because there's either a physical limitation or a preferred style that is so deeply ingrained that <clears throat> the player is not going to have the time commitment available to change that motor pattern, or it's completely pointless to try to do that because it's not, they're not going to actually play better. So I, I embrace style and the, the players, everything we'll call it as the center and you work with that. And if it, if it's yeah, something that's I, not going to stand in the way of progress, you just go, you go with it. Yeah, and, and, and don't get me wrong, guys. I, I uh, and John Hughes, I'm coming to you next. Um, you know, I, I agree, I think, as, as 
John Decker had mentioned a few moments ago, I think that when you're working with new students, you know, obviously you want to give them a platform to work from. Um, and again, there can be variances that they, or adjustments that they may want to make that are comfortable for them. And there's some basic fundamentals that obviously um, have been, uh, you know, tried uh, over the, the years and true and try, if you will. Um, but, but John Hughes, you know, I look at the history of golf and I look at, you know, going back 20, 30, more probably 30 years ago, and I look at the variety of golfers compared to today. Today they all look relatively the same. Uh, in many cases, they're starting to change a little bit, but uh, it's a very regimented golf swing now. But when I look at guys like Nick Price, I look at Trevino, I look at even Nicholas, and some of the, the, the Chichi Rodriguez, and some of these other golfers, if you were to categorize them today under the methodology that we're seeing out there, um, they'd all fail, even though they're getting great, have gotten great results over the careers. But as far as golf swing and and isolation, uh, you know, all these key areas and points uh, in the golf swing, they'd all probably fail miserably because they just don't have the, the aesthetics based on what, the, what we're doing today. Um, so what do you think about that in, as a general thing? Do you think that we have traditionally, I know you touched on it a moment ago, but do you think traditionally golf instruction as a whole is focusing too much uh, and too regimented in the um, not so much the fundamentals, but the golf swing itself, breaking it down and uh, into various different points, and sort of not forcing, but focusing too much on that as opposed to individual uh, creativity and style. Um, what do you think about that? And and what I mentioned about some of the older players that that we've followed for years, and and how they uh, seem to manage to win tournament after tournament. What do you think? The- we we walk a double edged sword in 2019 as compared to say 1979, 40 years ago. Uh, the advent of technology, we certainly get a little sterile uh, as far as not necessarily the complexity so much as here are the absolute positions, and then with FlightScope and TrackMan and all the rest of them, we just we doubled our game. Uh, I can remember uh, uh, John worked for Fred Griffin. Fred was with Dr. Man for a long time, and we had a bottle swing, and I had that as a screensaver on my computer for a little bit. It was all based on, <laughs> hey, here are so many golfers, and, and it's a compilation of all the perfection of these, and this is what it would look like. And that's sort of what you're talking about when we're watching tour players. That I would call it the the swings are are more alike and more sterile versus what Peter is saying more in style. And I think the double-edged sword is not only the technology; it's a fantastic thing. We have to learn to balance it. But the the one item that we as golfers uh, are faced with is that we don't get to practice on the playing field or the court or the ice or the pitch or any other place that all other sports do. So we've had to invent this laboratory per se called the practice area or the driving range or whatever the facility may call it. And it's created a wonderful laboratory. Uh, I can't think of too many other sports that have this very sterile place where without without any consequence, you can really learn to hone something. 
but it's been at the sacrifice of style. It's been at the sacrifice of learning on the job, per se, on on the golf course. And that's when you see a Lee Trevino, a, a Miller Barber, Nancy Lopez. Most of these people learned on the golf course. There may not have been mm-hmm. a driving range, and if it was, it just wasn't like it is today. Combine that with the technology, we haven't lost style so much as this Peter said, I love how he says it's all centered around the player. It was this, it was the mm-hmm. player's envisionment of themselves. And they, they, as Hogan eloquently said, you know, we, I got it out of the dirt. I pulled it out of the dirt kind of thing. It was numerous, numerous shots on a practice facility, but it was all based on learning to play the game first, being technically sound second. That paradigm shifted immensely in the 80s and 90s with video and and got a booster shot, per se, with ball technology. And I think what we're seeing now with PGA Junior League, with some of the other uh, adult leagues that are patterning themselves off of PGA Junior League, where we're sort of coming full circle where we're balancing this, where we're allowing people to be themselves and, and play within the style, the strategy, the mentality, that they want to play in and then sort of putting up those guidelines that you said before and said, you know, here's, here's some things to think about if you want to improve here, here are some parameters that all the best players try to practice in their own style, which make them that as good as they are. Uh, And we, as coaches, I think the best coaches out there are using that type of method, using that type of philosophy to get the most out of the players when the players are committed, uh, to Peter's point, we have to really understand that uh, the end result is the end result based on how much time commitment the player is putting in there. What can we do as coaches to maximize that? Trying to put up as few fences as possible to prevent them from playing. And sometimes when we get too technical, we don't realize we're putting up those fences. And when you can utilize technology, utilize that laboratory to make it a fun environment, to have people learn to play again. Uh, you see sustainable numbers within the industry. You see scores come down. The bottom line, everybody has more fun, including us as coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, what I wanted to, to ask or, or, I guess, infuse into the conversation um, obviously, tonight's discussion was not about chipping. That was how I wanted to start the, the conversation. And uh, thanks to all of you, we actually led down the path that I wanted to talk about tonight on the panel. Um, and uh, John Decker, I'm going to come back to you. And I, I want to sort of leave this thought with you, and, and then I want you to sort of, uh, you know, unpack it a little bit. You know, when you look at the, the world golf rankings, the number – What's interesting is they don't recognize the number one ball striker. They recognize, to John Hughes' point, the number one player. Um, Do you think, as a general rule, that the golfer, the average golfer, spends more time trying to be the number one ball striker? And I don't mean literally in the you know, in the sense, because obviously they're not playing on the tour, but in their minds that they're focusing to be the best ball striker as opposed to the best player. What are your thoughts on that? I, I do believe that most, the average golfer spends more of their time 
um, on the driving range. Now with all the phones, they have video. They can video their swings. They want to look like what they see on television. They want to look good on the first tee. Um, they don't want to embarrass themselves. And they feel like that, well, I can chip and putt. I know how to do that. But, you know, it's hit, it's, I want to hit the 300-yard drives. And so th- they spend mm-hmm. their time there. And, unfortunately, that does not lead to lower scores. If, you know, hitting five irons or six irons or seven irons on the driving range, I'm not saying that that's not beneficial, uh, especially when you're learning. But that is uh, makes up such a small part of what your score really is. I mean, the, the, the game is played from, you know, inside 100 yards, 150 yards, 75%, 40% of your score is really on the greens. So, you know, if you can play from 150 yards in uh, and eliminate, you know, knocking the ball out of bounds with your driver and, you know, getting the ball somewhat in play, you're going to play relatively good golf and you're going to have fun and you're going to want to play. Um, but standing there, it does you no good to just stand there and hit drivers or one club uh, on the driving range over and over and over again um, if you're not attacking where the 75% of your score comes from. And if people treated their golf games like they did their bank accounts, they would they would, they would yeah. practice a lot differently. So I always say, you know, you make your money from the 75% in. So 75% of your bank accounts here and the 25% the the other shots. And so – I think it's just a it's it's a great it's a great topic. I think there's a lot of tour players that fall into that trap, um, and uh, yeah. they get they get too wrapped up in making swing changes. I, to me, that was the one, you know, fault that that Tiger made. I thought he jumping around from coach to coach to coach to coach, four coaches in whatever 15 years. Uh, how many times did you see Jack Nicklaus do that? He didn't need to. He had God yeah. gave him a great swing. He worked it and he played with it. So. Short, getting back to the point, though, you know, I think that uh, people definitely spend too much time focusing on their swing. Well said. Just to uh, add a, a thought to um, that about Jack Nicholas, um, and I don't remember the coach's name, but uh, he actually did make a change partway through his career. Uh, and that particular coach, John, you may know who I'm talking about, but um, and they got him to – try to start drawing the ball more as opposed to hitting his traditional fade. And he actually ended up playing terrible on tour um, for that particular season and actually went back, reverted back to his old swing. So that sort of furthers your point is that was not comfortable for him. It's not to say he could never hit a draw, but that was not the comfortable shot for him and to try and change that player. Um, Peter brings me to a question based on, on what John was just talking about. Uh, and, and again, let me just preface this a little bit. You know, we're not, I'm not trying to uh, say this as a criticism of the industry. I'm just trying to uh, help listeners and, and help, you know, my fellow uh, teacher professionals and coaches out there to understand that, you know, we have to really think about things uh, in this day and age a lot differently than maybe what we might have at one point. But, Peter, what I want to ask you is this, is how do we change? What do we start doing? doing differently to change the mindset uh, of our golfers out there because I think for a long time uh, they have been sort of beaten in with with um, you know technique and, and that and it's caused them a lot of frustration and ultimately what we want them to do obviously we want them to improve uh, but we want them to have fun how do we change that mindset of today's golfer that's that's a very good question um I think it starts from what we're doing on a daily basis as uh, 
just people that have immediate contact with um, with golfers in our ecosystem, and especially our players because they trust us. They're we're they're they've come to us and they've stayed with us because they trust us, and um, we have an opportunity to help them understand that it, simplicity is where consistency can come from. You know, and I ask my players all the time, can you let it be this simple? Because we're searchers by nature. We're people, we're, we're seekers, we're searchers. We're looking for not what's the next best thing, but maybe, you know, and I say this to people all the time. I said, just because I, I said, you know, we've really worked hard to get it boiled down to this one thing and this foundation for you can you let it be this simple and don't don't go out practicing and and say well peter said this and maybe he meant this and if maybe if i do this too right. it's going to make it better and i i just we right. really have that conversation all the time we really do have that conversation mm-hmm. and i think if the more people that can have that conversation and the more that the media and the and the you know, the I I really wish we could hit reset on YouTube content. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just because you know, if you if anybody listening goes to to YouTube and Google's golf tip, you're probably going to get about 43 million hits. Just about that. Yeah. And it's it's a resource. It's a very real resource, and a lot of it's very real that a lot of people are going to it. And there's not. I would say maybe one percent of that has anything to do with talking about mindset or mm. the mental approach to anything. You, I could probably name a handful of, you know, people in a golf and ecosystem that are talking about that at all. And it's something I talk about a lot with my players. It's 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 one of the real four cornerstones of all of it, and. You know, the, the three, three of the four are, have a lot to do with mindset and um, and emotion and all sorts of different things that have n- almost nothing to do with skill development. So, um, yeah, that's just my thought. Well, on and, and that's, I, I think yeah, and that's, it, I think we're going no, in a better direction, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, and and I think that's a great point, um, John. Uh, I'm referring to John Hughes. You know, we're we're seeing. I think a different approach and I'm, I'm liking to see and to go to Peter's point, you know, with YouTube and things like that, we've talked about this, you know, a dozen times at least on the show. Um, you know, people, a lot of times they'll come to us and then they'll say, well, I saw this great video and, and I, what are your thoughts here? And, you know, we can go back and forth, back and forth. Um, but I, I want to say something to you, John, and I, I want to get your thought on this. And, and we were talking a few minutes ago about, um, or John Decker had mentioned about going on the, the practice tee, um, I've always a- approached it from this way, and I want to get your thoughts, whether you agree, disagree, and, and you're fa- well to disagree with me. But with the – and I'm excluding beginning golfers because obviously that's where we're going to do the building blocks, the initial building blocks, teaching the, the basic fundamentals and that. I've always looked at the, the practice facility or the practice tee. Um, I sort of rename it, if you will, a warm-up tee or a warm-up facility, because that's really what it's designed for. It's not really designed, again, excluding the beginning golfers, 
for most better golfers or your, your top golfers, it's a place to warm up to see what game I have today. What do you think about that? Is that maybe a, a better approach that for our students is to think of it as instead of I've got to go out there and I've got to practice, 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 um, I've got to warm up my game. What do you think about that? I'll, I'll embellish a thought by saying that if all you ever plan to do as a golfer from an improvement standpoint of view is try something out at that facility prior to playing, then it's a combination practice warm-up. If your intention is to improve your skills, you're going to commit some time. It serves a dual role. Uh, before you go play, it is a warm-up. You have to get in touch with who you are mentally, physically, emotionally before you get out to play. It's why it's called a warm-up in any sport. But then after mm-hmm. the fact is when you see the best players in the world utilize that same space, that same facility for practice. Yep. And it's very mm-hmm. pinpointed. They, they just don't go out there and strike a lot of balls. I, I emphasize this with all my clients. If all you want to do is strike balls, you're out there of no purpose, go to a gym. You'll get it done faster. Uh, you, you'll be less painful in your arms and shoulders and hands from the reverberation of the <laughs> shaft going through you. Go, go to the gym. You'll get it done faster. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a perfect example of that. When I lost some weight years ago, I got there faster and better by going to the gym. So, yeah, it is a warm-up area. But if your commitment is to improve your skill, it is a practice area, but you just can't go there with the thought that 75 reps or 150 reps is going to get it done. The best players mm-hmm. in the world, the people who are trying to become the best players in the world, the people who are dreaming to become the best players in the world, and the people who aren't born yet or that are going to do the same will all utilize that facility in a very pinpointed, very disciplined way with goals, dead set, solid goals in mind. And they, every ball they strike, every pre-shot routine they go through, and every evaluation, every, every shot they go through has a purpose. And, and when you can split the purposes up the way you said, warm up to begin, practice at the end, but mm-hmm. practice with a purpose, you get better utilization mm-hmm. out of that facility. Yeah, and, and just to, to further that point, you know, if you go to any PGA Tour event or LPGA Tour event, doesn't matter, and you watch the best players in the world, they will go to the practice tee to warm up before their round for a few moments. Um, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will go after the round because really what they're doing pre-round is they're looking to see, okay, how am I hitting the ball? What, what's going to work today? What's not going to work today? And they'll make adjustments accordingly before they step out in the golf course. But after the round, post-round, that's, as you said, that's when they're doing their evaluations. That's when they're saying, okay, this is how this held up today. This didn't hold up so good. I'm going to fine-tune or I'm going to make some adjustments or I'm going to find out why this was happening uh, today, why I wasn't putting well, and they'll work those tweaks out. They don't do it before a round because they don't want to, and I hate to use this term, they don't want to jinx the round by trying to make adjustments uh, pre-round like that, unless it's something very, very minor. Uh, because that could be detrimental to that that particular round. So uh, great point, uh, John. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, well, guys, believe it or not, we're we're out of time. That was uh, that was actually a pretty fast discussion. That was a fast hour, uh, at least from my standpoint. 
Um, I, I want to thank you guys, uh, as always, for uh, for coming on the show, and, and I appreciate you giving up your time. And I'm going to go in the same order, John Decker, Peter, and then John Hughes. Uh, let the folks know if uh, where they can reach out and uh, if there's anything special that you want to announce. Yes, uh, again, Ted, thank you very much for having me on the show. And Peter and John, I've enjoyed it and learned a lot by listening to you. Um, you can the, the listeners out there uh, can follow me on Facebook at John Decker Golf Instruction, and I'm spell my first name J O N. I'm also on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, um, and also um, I'm on GolfSwing.com forward slash John Decker. I've got about 300 videos on that website. Um, I'm excited to announce um, that next Tuesday I'm going to be uh, launching a podcast with Dr. Angelica Napolitano. She's a doctor of physical therapy, and we, we've already taped the show. We, we talked a lot about the Masters and Tiger. And so she does more of the aches and pains of, the, of, the, of what Tiger Woods has gone through, and I do more of the swing stuff. So um, I'm excited for that, and uh, hopefully, Ted, will have you on the show sometime as well. Um, and then my book is uh, available on uh, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the, through the Game. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And I'll be speaking in Southern Pines on May the 1st and in Benson, North Carolina on May the 2nd. If you live in North Carolina, I'd love to see you. But thanks again, Ted. I appreciate it, John, always. Um, Peter, where can the folks best way to reach you and anything specific uh, that you might want to uh, let the listeners know about? Yeah, uh, again, thanks, Ted. Uh, thanks, guys. Always learn a lot. Um, people can reach me at um, primarily Instagram is, is the best. It's uh, uh, at Daily dot co- go- I'm sorry, at daily dot golf coach, um, and they can download the Go Golf Coach app on either uh, the Google Play Store or Apple, and uh, enjoy the the mobile coaching experience with myself. So, again, the my website is uh, gogolfcoach.com, and please reach out if I can help. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Appreciate it, Peter. Thank you again for for joining us tonight. And last but not least, uh, John Hughes, best way that the folks can reach you and anything um, you got coming up that you want to announce? Sure. Peter, John, always a pleasure. Peter, uh, great connecting with you. We we tend to be on these quite a bit together. It's always fun to hear hear some things from you. I always learn something from you, John. Definitely hear a lot of Fred Griffin and you, and it's, uh, he's one of my best friends in the world here in Orlando. And I certainly want to say thanks to you both. Uh, people can reach me. It's really simple. I, I worked hard at this early. John Hughes Golf, whether it's .com, at John Hughes Golf, Facebook, John Hughes Golf, type that in. That's where you're going to find me. I'm at Falcons Fire Golf Club in Kissimmee, all year long. I'm also at Streamsong Resort doing special programs there. Nothing new other than everybody's getting into their season, and I've seen everybody get into their season. I'm winding down a little bit. Some more projects on the way as the summer goes on. And last but not least, Ted, thanks for your patience last week. I know I was scheduled last week and had some client uh, <laughs> situations occur. It's it's always great to be on here, and, and you've been a uh, uh, very much an inspiration over the past three or four months in particular and trying to help me out with some questions I had concerning podcasts and the like. And you know, by the end of the year, maybe some of those things will be shaping up. But I just want to say thanks. Well, I appreciate it, uh, John and, and guys. Uh, always, as I said, 
And John, not a problem. We always manage to work things out on the show. And as I've said many, many times, uh, your uh, teaching and helping your students always comes first. The show comes second. So not a problem. And uh, I know you'll always make it up down the road. So I appreciate it, guys. Glad you were able to come uh, this week, John. And uh, John Decker, Peter Agazarian, and John Hughes, thank you very much, as always, uh, for bringing your best to the Coach's Corner panel. It's uh, been a fun discussion tonight, and we'll see what uh, Tigers does for the rest of the season. He's already uh, racked up one Masters, uh, one major this season. We'll see if he's going to go for the slam. Uh, But thanks, guys. Have a great week, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. All right. Good night, guys. All right, that was the uh, Coach's Corner panel. Uh, again, John Decker, Peter Agazarian, and John Hughes. Uh, and uh, always bringing their best. And before I bring on my special guest tonight, uh, just another quick word uh, from tonight's Coach's Corner span- uh, sponsor, uh, golfswing.com. Are you finally ready to improve your golf game? Golfswing.com is changing the way golfers learn online. With the largest collection of golf training programs and drills on the planet, GolfSwing.com can help you improve every part of your game. Whether you want to gain more distance, hit it closer, or just sink more putts, GolfSwing.com staff of world-class coaches can help you gain the results you need. Watch unlimited videos on any device from anywhere in the world and start playing better, scoring lower, having more fun, and saving money. Get your fix on demand at GolfSwing.com. All right, and once again, thank you to uh, the sponsor of the Coach's Corner panel, GolfSwing.com. All right, I got a very special guest tonight. He's actually been on the show. It's, I think it's been a few years since he's been on, but uh, always uh, enjoyed having him on the last time, and I'm looking forward to catching up with him this time. And of course, I'm talking about Joshua Jacobs, the founder and CEO of TJ Premier Sports. Um, I'll bring him out here in just a second. But let me just tell you a little bit about him. So for those of you that uh, didn't tune in the last time he was on, give you an idea a little bit about his background. Uh, Joshua founded TGA Premier Golf in 2003 in 12 of the Los Angeles elementary schools, creating the first after-school golf enrichment uh, curriculum of its kind. In 2006, the, uh, the demand grew uh, for his programs, and he scaled the model and launched his first-ever youth sports franchise company that specialized in golf. Today, TGA delivers introductory after-school golf enrichment programs, camps, parent-child events, and leagues at 3,400 locations nationwide. Uh, he was named by Golf Magazine as one of the top 40 most influential poop, uh, people uh, in golf under 40 and was recognized as one of golf's innovators by Golf Inc. Uh, he served on PGA of America National Boards, uh, the Southern California PGA's Foundation Advisory Board, and the Player Development Board, the uh, World Golf Foundation Advisory Board, and the USTA's uh, National Schools Committee. Uh, lots of other great things, but I want to bring him out here and get into tonight's discussion. So please welcome my very special guest, Joshua Jacobs. Good evening, Joshua. Good evening. <laughs> Good evening. How are you? How are you? I'm doing well. Um, as I'm sure you heard, I was just mentioning that uh, you, you brought a few years ago, I think it was about three years ago, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, we talked about uh, a little bit about your business model and that. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, that again. I know you've got some other things that are are happening as well, but uh, I appreciate you uh, coming back on and, and taking some time with me. No, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Always good to be back. I, I, I believe it was about three years ago. Yeah, I think it was about three, may, might have been four years ago, but uh, it, it's been a little while and uh, our, our good mutual friend, uh, Kevin Frisch, when he uh, 
reached out and and uh, presented the opportunity to have you come back on again. I I I, I took him up on it very very promptly. So, uh, but I appreciate uh, Joshua as always. Um, let me just read something out, and then I, I want to um, ask you, obviously, uh, again about the the franchise model. Um, uh, TJ Premier Golf is the only youth sports franchise program dedicated to the sport of golf and the leading delivery system for introductory and recreational youth golf programs uh, in communities nationwide with over 750,000 participants to date. Um, that's a, an incredible number, uh, really, for any organization to, to boast, especially in this day and age with so much competition out there. How did you come up with the franchise model, and why do you think it works so well? Well, I, I think back in the day when I started this, uh, there there was a real void for introductory programs in golf, um, and and I think that there were under underserviced uh, demographics. And as we all know, less than three percent of America plays golf, so it doesn't matter whether you know you're in the lower income or or the upper echelon income. The opportunity to grow the sport exists throughout, and. So we noticed there was a void, but we also noticed entrepreneurial activity in that introductory space going to locations that had families that otherwise didn't play golf. And in order to do that, you needed to bring the sport to them to initially gain their interest. And so right. we, we created this model. We created this model, as, as, as you kind of read off, that starts in the schools. It's, a, it's an after-school program, and, and we do do a, a little bit of PE programs because the schools ask us to do them as well to, to garner more interest in the after-school program. But 70% of our kids have never played before. Uh, the model starts in the schools. We bring all the equipment. Uh, all they need to do is, is bring, you know, closed-toed tennis shoes, and, and we have uh, equipment sized right for these kids. We have props. We have targets. They, they learn everything from putting to full swing. It doesn't matter whether it's indoors or outdoors. And, and the model... Mm -hmm. Uh, took shape there in the introductory level, and then we transitioned these kids to recreational programs, camps, uh, parent-child events, now family events, and uh, and then we really turn them loose in the golf world for the PGA and LPGA professionals to really create the the avid golfers. Yeah, and you know what I like, and I remember this from our our discussion the last time. Um, and, and again, not to knock some of these other great uh, programs that are out there. Uh, like the PGA Junior League and, and others like that, but they tend to be more, um, and I think we talked about this, almost like feeders for the tourists, if you will. Um, they're more uh, technical-driven as far as the golf swing and things like that. And, and you know, they're, they can be very, in certain circumstances, can be very high pressure for a lot of the, the kids. And, you know, we, we hear about this in the industry a lot of times. The kids get so pressured uh, into performing um, that they they're not really having fun anymore, and the parents you know get a little bit too assertive uh, or aggressive with it as well because they want to see their you know child win the when uh, you know the masters when they grow up uh, like Tiger did this past week. So you know I like your approach to this, and I want to ask you something um, back to the schools here. You know as I mentioned earlier on, um, you know you're in 3,400 schools now, and you've really de developed a unique uh, curriculum. Um, incorporating what you call the STEAM labs with golf. How does the curriculum work, and how have the schools responded to it? Uh, so the curriculum is a station-based activity learning system where the kids are never standing in line. Um, there, there's different stations that they go through on a daily basis, whether it's rules and etiquette, chipping, putting, 
And then, as you mentioned, we also have academic stations with it. So there's a standard class outline that we always follow. The kids start the class by shaking hands. <clears throat> they then go into the instruction for the day along with stretching and exercise. Uh, once they do that, they enter the station-based activities where one of those stations is academic, and we often incorporate STEAM labs with them, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics, almost Bryson DeChambeau-esque, oh, wow. but uh, a, little, a little bit dumbed right. down, if you will. <laughs> but, uh, so, right. yeah, so, uh, so we, we do that, and then um, and we also have our student handbooks that every kid and family receives that goes through the program, so there's a lot of great information there on the sport in general, as well as our programs. We then have a, a, a game of some sort to, as you said, make it fun. And, and then finally, right. we end with, with the Achieve section of our website. Our, our curriculum kind of goes in the Teach, Grow, Achieve, uh, the, those sections very much like TGA. But getting back to your point, um, I, I'd like before that, getting, I really believe that the golf industry is trending towards less pressure. Uh, I, I think what the golf right. industry does is, is they do a, we do a great job with, with competitive golf especially at the junior level. There are so many tours. Obviously, AJGA does a wonderful job, Steve Hamblin and his team. But, but what you did yep. specifically mention, PGA Junior League Golf, and uh, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, Steve Canner at the PGA of America and his team there have done an incredible job uh, growing that league, honing that model, and really making it so it's inclusive, where it's fun. There, there actually right. is less pressure, I think, in the scramble format and in the team format. The parents seem to really take it, uh, really take to it. Uh, yes, of course, there's a national championship. You kind of need that carrot, but they're they're really driving recreational leagues now uh, throughout the United States. I, I see that as having a big opportunity to impact uh, a junior golf moving forward. Yeah, and let me just preface this. Let me just uh, correct myself a little bit. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest, so for you listening out there, um, that uh, there was anything wrong or, or, or they were part of the problem at PGA Junior League. I just was a reference as just naming somebody that came off the top of my head. So I don't want to suggest that their model or, or their uh, program is not uh, uh, certainly working out in the best interest of, of the, the, the kids that are involved. So I just want to clarify that. Um, but my, my point was that, you know, for a long time, and, and, you know, when you and I talked the last time, this was some part of our discussion um, was that there there really was a uh, more of a high pressured approach, and I think the industry has started to recognize just by the fact that people were were dropping out they It was just too difficult um, they just felt like they weren 't really enjoying themselves and and um, you know especially when you 're dealing with kids if they 're not you know if, if they feel like they 're being pushed or, or prodded too aggressively in a direction. Um, they're going to resist and they're going to back off. And I think the, the industry as a whole has started to recognize that, as you suggest. And, and something I want to uh, pick up on that, that you mentioned, and, and I want you to um, explain a little bit if, if this is something since you first started your programs, if this is something that you did from day one, or is this something that you trended to do differently? But you mentioned about uh, having the, the various stations so that people aren't, you know, the kids aren't just sort of standing around. Um, you know as well as I do. I remember as a, you know when I was a, a kid in school, you know if you were standing around for any length of time, you're very impatient. You want to you know you want to be in the activity. Did you find was that something that you did early on that you recognized that hey we need to keep the kids active and moving and doing things. And if they're standing in line you know ten deep, um, you know the first three are kind of excited because they're going to be next. 
but the other six or seven are going to get bored because they're standing around doing nothing. Is that something that you recognized right away that you needed to make sure that you had those stations available, or was that something that sort of transitioned as you went along, as you sort of went through the learning curve? That's a great question. You learn a lot about business. You know, we've been doing it, uh, you know, more than 15 years now, and we always like to take our consumer feedback and and, and run with it. And and you're 100% correct. We we did not start out that way. In fact, there were – we, we had right. people in lines, and the the parents were saying, hey, look, this is a great program. I love that you're you're making golf available to everyone, but my kid just went through an hour program and hit five shots. Thanks for thanks for the right. etiquette lesson, but we want them to get more repetition, and I think that'll lead to more fun. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. We, we made that transition uh, to station-based curriculum, and then eventually, uh, about a year and a half in, we realized that to to really accelerate the growth and increase the participation in the program it we we incorporated academics into it and and which looked great for the schools that we became an extension of the classroom but the parents also then tend to migrate more to our program back to what you were saying before you're a hundred percent correct unfortunately in the youth sports world uh, parents and kids have really gravitated towards this early sport specialization. Uh, there's a great article in, in Time right. Magazine about it, and it, there's no different in the golf world. And it, it's kind of twofold, right? So the mm. first fold is there's right. a ton of money in competitive golf. I mean, the amount of money that you can now make <clears throat> playing golf is is at professional level. Besides the just the purses alone, the endorsement, et cetera. So that that carrot. Um, is huge, let alone the ability right. to get college scholarships. So that, that saves the parents. So parents, yeah, they, they, they have gotten – it has gotten away from them a little bit. They, you know, it's no longer you're, you're dropping your kid off at the, at the course for a full day and picking them up when, as the sun sets. It's, it's rigorous training, um, especially at, in high school, yeah. both uh, you know, fitness as well as the golf. And it's it, – it, there, there definitely is an opportunity for the golf industry to decide, okay, are we going to concentrate and, and put all the sexiness, continue that in the competitive aspect of the game, or are we looking to increase participation, avid golfers that really helps all facets of the industry, um, manufacturers, media, everybody, everybody does better when there's when there's more players and, and higher participation and more rounds being played. So I think it's going to be an interesting topic of conversation over the next two to three years. I mean, Tiger, Tiger winning the Masters and coming back the way he did, I, I knew yeah. you were talking about that before, he definitely put right. the limelight on our sport. There, there's no doubt. So the, I think the myth that happened, uh, you know, a, a decade and a half ago with Tiger was everybody, he came on the scene and, and everybody said, it was more than a decade. I think it was 20 years ago. But he came on the scene and everyone right. said, this is going to grow the sport. Oh, it's going to be amazing, huge opportunity. And, and there was a huge opportunity. What, what Tiger does is increase the demand for the sport. It increases our ability right. to activate consumers. But what, what the industry is looking at, I think, is do we have the infrastructure to accommodate that demand can we create the supply if you had a golf course and all of a sudden the next day 150 people showed up at the gates and said we want to play golf we've never played golf before what does that golf course do and 
I'm not sure that we're ready for that kind of influx. So I think there needs to be some some um, some infrastructure build. You've got you know Mike O'Donnell, the PGA America, who's who's working on PGA reach and increasing the value of of the PGA professional for the consumer and the coaching level. So I think we're getting there. We may not be there yet. So hopefully yep. Tiger, Tiger, Tiger sticks around for, you know, three to five more years. <laughs> well, he's, he's 43 now, so he's getting up there. Uh, you know, Joshua, something that really raises an interesting point. Um, and you're exactly right. When Tiger first sort of came on the scene, it was actually 97 when he made his, uh, 97, yeah, 97 when he made his official um, introductory into the golfing world. And, um, you know, he did, he did bring a lot of attention to the game. And what was kind of interesting, uh, not on this show here, but I do another show Tuesday mornings called The Women of Golf and uh, with my friend and co-host, LPJ professional Cindy Miller. And we have the honor of uh, interviewing many of the young up-and-coming women on the Symmetra Tour, which, of course, is the feeder tour into the LPGA. And what, what's interesting is when I asked, and, of course, they range from, you know, 19 to mid-20s, and what was kind of interesting, we asked them one day, you know, who was sort of their hero. And I had three of them on at one time, uh, sort of a special panel. And what was interesting is not one of them mentioned a female golfer. They all mentioned Tiger Woods as somebody they really looked up to and admired as far as uh, a golfer. So you would have, you know, obviously they're a little young to understand who Nancy Lopez and that. And they certainly don't know who the original founders of the LPGA. They don't have that, that information. But it goes to your point is that he had a lot of um, influence on attracting people to the game. The one thing that I noticed, and then I want to get back into to, you know, your, uh, your model here, is unfortunately he attracted a lot of people, but many of those that he attracted – did not have the resources to be able to really enjoy it. In fact, since Tiger Woods, I can't think of one African American golfer um, who is out, you know, out on tour. Um, there are certainly other minority golfers out there, but um, so if you look at it from that standpoint, there were a lot of minorities that were very, very attracted. But once they got out there and realized how expensive golf can be and how unattainable it is. Uh, or out of reach, if you will, for them, um, they quickly got turned off. So the industry, you're right, I think the industry partners need to play a bigger role in, in making it more accessible so that those that aren't in the upper echelon or higher uh, income level brackets uh, can have an opportunity to go out and, and uh, you know, battle it out in the golf course, if you will. And uh, obviously programs like you uh, offer, give them, uh, and I want to ask you that, how does the uh, your TGA player pathway work and how is it impacting uh, golf courses and the industry as a whole? Uh, I, again, a great question. Um, so, so the player pathway, if you, if you look at the industry, whether you're, whether you're teaching juniors or you're teaching adults, there's really three levels to the pyramid, introductory, recreational, and competitive golf. And we are right. that base of the pyramid. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's probably, the, the one, when it comes to growing participation and, and creating avid golfers, it's really the place that the industry needs to kind of, kind of morph a little bit in terms of getting more people who don't play to the sport. Once we get them to the sport, we, we actually do a pretty good job of yep. keeping them in the sport. But, but getting them right. to the sport is difficult. So our pathway is schools, um, you know, kids bond to P 
people, and they don't bond to programs. So it's important for us to make sure we have great coaches, and our coaches are all walks of life. They're PGA. They're all PGA professionals. They're senior retired people. Right. They are uh, <clears throat> in college. They're high school golfers. It's, it's all the above, and so we make the program fun. We make, we make it so the kids bond with the coaches, and then the parents, from a, from a business standpoint, the parents bond to brands. And if we're, like I said, we got about 70% of our kids and our families who have never played golf before. So when you provide a fun program for a kid, you give them the opportunity to achieve, the parents are going to come with you and they're going to say, okay, what's next? And that's where we partner with, and we say, all right, we've got, we're in 30 or 40 schools in this area. We've got a database of, you know, four to 5,000 people. How can we partner to make this a win-win situation? And, and they say, great, you know, what kind of programs do you want to run? And, and we talk about camps and family events, parent-child events, et cetera. <clears throat> and we partner with them that way. And that's your transition to the golf course. After that, right? If, if we are not going to make the competitive golfer. We're, we're not going to make the Tiger Woods. Uh, and, right. and that we really want to leave to the experts. Those are the PGA and LPGA professionals, the high-level teachers, and, and the golf courses providing them excellent facilities to, to, to be able to hone their skills. As you said, Tiger is the one, he, he really is the one who moves that needle. Um, there really isn't another golfer that's been able to do that since him, both male or female. It's, it's both, uh, it's both right. a blessing and a curse for our industry. And it, this, this right. you know, everyone's calling it Tiger 2.0. It's going to be really interesting to see where it goes. That's for sure. Yeah, and, and I think there's definitely um, going to be a lot of buzz um, and there already is. Obviously, the media is eating it up um, since his win at the Masters this past weekend. But it'll be interesting to see how the rest of the season goes for him. And I think if it goes well, which I believe it will, I think he's he's. Um, I don't like to use the word he's back, but I, I think that you know he's refreshed. He he's healthier now. His you know his back is in much better shape and knee and so forth. So I think he's a healthier Tiger now. And I think he's always had the game in, in his head, but unfortunately. Uh, you know, as we all get a little bit older, our body doesn't always seem to cooperate sometimes. So, um, but now that he's he's gotten himself back in shape, I, I think we're going to see some great things. Uh, and I think this win at the Masters is 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 going to help propel that uh, you know forward. So we'll we'll see what happens. But um, I'm certainly rooting for him. Let me ask you I something, so, uh, and I don't know what I, kind of. Yeah, yeah, I, I think a lot of people <laughs> are. I think a lot of people have really been pulling for him. Um, Joshua, let me ask you just sort of piggybacking on what we were just talking about with uh, changes in the industry and how it's impacting and that. Uh, are you getting any sort of stats? Now, obviously, you have your after-school program, so it's mixed as boys and girls, but are you seeing uh, an increased trend with young girls particularly? And the reason why I ask this is if you look at the industry stats, uh, over a third of all new golfers are young females getting into the sport. Um, and it's it's really uh, really grown exponentially over the last several years despite – um, numbers overall have gone down a little bit, but yet new golfers coming in. Are you seeing and have you kept any sort of stats to see, you know, uh, to to sort of um, support that where you're seeing a lot of new uh, young ladies taking an interest in getting involved in golf through your camps and so forth? Absolutely. Uh, we About five years ago, we were at 70% male, uh, 30% female. And to date, we are uh, 61% male, 39% female. So we, we are wow. seeing that trend. 
Uh, absolutely. Yep. I think the NGF actually released their numbers today that, that girls golf or the, the, the girls that play golf, the girls juniors, I think it's up 300% or something in the past uh, three to four years. Wow. But with us, we're seeing we're seeing yep. more more girls participate. We're we're also running as as an organization. TGA is running uh, LPGA USGA girls golf programs. Another great initiative. Girls do want to, especially with introductory programs, they want to play with other girls. The parents feel more comfortable. The kids feel more comfortable. It's it's a great initiative. It's a great opportunity for anyone who's out there who wants to create programs at a facility or. Or, or you know, in 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 the community, to be able to bring programs that are just for girls. When you mentioned before about mm-hmm. the initiatives that really did not take into account the cost of of getting these kids to a to a high level place, golf is an expensive right. sport. It's 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 not <clears throat> like tennis where you had the Williams sisters. Uh, out of, I, I believe they were out of Compton, California, where, where you just need a, a racket and some balls and some tennis shoes, and, and you can try right. to be a, a professional tennis player. It doesn't really work like that right. with golf. Um, no. So, there, there are a lot of initiatives out there. I think we all do a great job of, uh, uh, of you know, filling a void in a, certain, in a certain area. Obviously, the other big one, uh, the junior programs, is, is the first tee. And we are extremely complimentary to, to their programs. They run more PE programs, mm-hmm. and they have an amazing national school program. We, we do the after-school component. <clears throat> their their uh, facilities are mainly in more, more lower-income areas where it's a, it, you know, there is an absolute void for the, for the sport, and they fill that void, and they do it really well. Uh, with us, we concentrate more on the middle to upper income areas but but we also have a right. 501c3 we also have a 501c3 foundation that goes with our programs so any kid who wants mm-hmm. to participate in our programs who otherwise couldn't afford it we have to to get them um, all of our franchises uh-huh. uh, engage with our with with more of our upper income families and we've had a great we've had great success with them giving back to to our programs in the sport it's it's definitely a problem that, that that we've got to come together as an industry, but it it's also it's mm-hmm. tremendous resources. I mean, I, I would venture to guess it's probably seven to times seven to ten times more expensive to create a professional a, a professional out of a out of a more under resourced area than it is for for, for tennis. And where are those resources yeah. going to come from? But I I certainly agree with you. We need more diversity and inclusion uh, throughout the industry. And it, and it wouldn't be a bad thing to see it on tour. No, you know, I would like for one, Joshua, to see um, some of the industry leaders in the um, equipment side, particularly, uh, um, you know, instead of spending uh, a lot of the, the funds on, you know, research and development of new technology for golf equipment. I mean, I don't think you're going to get a, a driver or what have you that's going to hit the ball much further than what they are now or same with the golf ball. And I mean, the, the, the measurements are insurmountable. I'd love to see that money going towards um, good programs and, and um, um, you know, in, into uh, some sort of a foundation to allow accessibility to those that might not have it. Because I think, you know, and, and I'm sure as you've seen, once you get kids out there and playing and, 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 and introduce, uh, introducing them to golf, um, they get very, very excited about it. They like the challenge. They love the, the game, and they can be become very creative. And then where it takes them beyond that, you know, obviously is up to them. But 
just getting them to that first stage is, is critical. And I'd like to see some of the, the big companies uh, um, get out there and, and allocate some, some more. I know they are doing some now, but I'd like to see them do more. Um, I, I, I saw a very interesting I, stat. What, sorry, go ahead. I, I, let, me, let me just interject. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind either. I think it's. I think it's a. Uh, you know, obviously, it, it helps PGA. It helps golf. But I. I think it's. Uh, I, I think it's difficult, especially with the major manufacturers, because the big ones are publicly traded companies, and so they right. are, and, and for good reason, right? They're shareholders. We we understand sure. that, and but but they're really focused on on selling the you know the drivers right. every year and and the high end sets of irons and making sure their marketing teams get their brand in front of as many people as they can and keep them playing the, their brand what what i would like to see from them from the manufacturers is is thinking more more long term on customer acquisition rather right. than just short term uh, which, which then I, I think that would change the mindset of, of people who are, are growing the sport from an introductory level. And then, then you can look to keep people in that brand for, you know, three to 10 years, maximize that, but you also get the opportunity to activate their parents when, when, when you get the kids. So I, I it's yeah, definitely it, a conundrum. It's definitely a conundrum for the, for the manufacturers. <laughs> Well, and it's not impossible to do, and, and I don't want to, you know, belabor the point because we've got other things to talk about here. But, you know, Nike years ago, you know, when they were recruiting basketball, I mean, they got very heavily involved in financing and funding um, uh, schools and things like that in order to recruit athletes. And obviously, there was a method to their madness. They wanted to, to get the cream of the crop. But, you know, they were willing to do that. And I think the golf industry needs to do more of that as well. And they can open up other divisions within their company, um, you know, to avoid some of the, the issues that you're, you mentioned. But um, that's something that they're going to have to work out. But I would like to see them get more actively involved in at a um, an introductory level um, and, and not just, you know, selling you and I a, a new piece of equipment every year. Um, something interesting here that I was reading, um, you know, you quote here that 70% of the TGA participants and, and their parents have never played golf before uh, trying TGA. And this is really bringing, uh, obviously, the millennials into the sport. Um, and obviously, how are, how are you able to attract? Because this new generation that's coming out now, the millennials and, and others, um, you know, they weren't exposed to uh, golf the same way that maybe you and I were, uh, particularly me. I'm, I think I'm a little bit older than you. but um, and, and it's not in the... the common core at the schools right now as other sports are so how are you finding the response with that group particular uh and obviously some of the younger parents what's been some of the feedback there another great question um when it comes to growing the sport there's different age groups that and there's different ways to activate the demand of those age groups and even in the millennial category i think there's 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 multiple there's multiple groups within that category. The first, the first one is the more single people, correct? So we've got the, the top golf, the mm-hmm. drive shacks, all of those, you know, off course opportunities for, for those millennials. And, and then you obviously have the millennials that, that have children. So it's, it's a little bit different from a, from a time function as well as how do you attract them? Uh, our, our program, it's interesting. I, I, I've always thought of it as, you have to get the parents in order to activate the kids. Whereas 
in our case, it kind of works backwards. What, what we found is if, if you hook the kids uh, through the school programs, the parents, if they mm-hmm. don't play, which is the majority of our, our, our participants, they want to start playing. And right. time function, the, the kid sees the opportunity, they get hooked. The parent realizes, well, if they're going to play golf, that, that's, that's pretty time-consuming. Maybe I'll play it with them. And, it's a, you know, golf is an amazing family opportunity. Oh, the ability yeah. to, to play yeah. golf together, th- those experiences are priceless, as, as we all know. But you really have to educate the parents who don't play. And then we also have the parents who do play whose kids start playing. And then they just want to play more. So for us, it's kind of a back, it's kind of a backdoor entry into that 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 market that segment. So we we simply do it by running great programs and and which opens the line of communication to the parents and then offering programs that fit what their needs are. And once we do that, we, we it gives us a great opportunity to activate that entire family. That's that's kind of the way we do it. It's not rocket science, but but creating the programs and creating the availability of, of bringing golf to the masses, that's really the challenging part. Once you do that, you've got the communication touch points, and then it's just give the people what they want. Yeah, and, you know, what's really interesting about what you were just talking about is you're exactly right. When the kids show an interest in something, now obviously there are exceptions to the rule, but, you know, other, some other sports – um, now, if the parents are a little bit younger, it's not uh, as big of an issue. But if you've got parents that are maybe a little bit older, if their kids are, are still young enough that they're in school and, and they're getting involved in some activities, uh, some of those activities, the parents are maybe, it's not saying they can't participate, but it's, you know, they're not as young anymore. And that the one great thing about golf is, you know, you can play it really until uh, you're well up into your 60s, 70s, 80s, and even 90s. So it's not as restrictive as other sports. So if their kids or grandkids are getting involved, um, this is a great way for them to stay involved with, with their kids. Um, unlike, you know, other sports, you know, if they're playing basketball or something, that may be one thing, but, you know, um, even tennis, I mean, tennis can be a little bit more impact than, than golf. Um, there comes a point in time where they're not doing that anymore or running or whatever the case is. So uh, you're exactly right. Getting these kids at a very early age actively involved will sometimes draw the parents into that fold as well, and I think that's a great, uh, a great approach. Um, something else, too, that's uh, very interesting, I, I know you probably want to talk a little bit about, is uh, you, guys, you, you recently completed a uh, $750,000 uh, infrastructure investment to sort of streamline operations, if you will, uh, in order to help grow golf a little bit more uh, efficiently. Um, how do you think this is going to position you guys for uh, future uh, business and also, uh, how do you think it's going to help to impact the industry? I think it's going to position us for the future uh, in the fact that we're going to be able to grow quicker, and and it's going to right. make it, it. We're going to be able to grow quicker in two fronts. Number one, uh, growing our number of franchises quicker, uh, just due to the business efficiency that we've created, which incur- which allows franchises to get more people into their programs quicker as well as have a higher profit margin. I mean, the, the people who buy our business, they're entrepreneurs. They, they got to put food on the table. And, and the best part about what we've created is the amount, of, the amount of money you make, the amount of food that you're putting on the table is all based on how much you, you grow the sport in terms of participation. The more kids that sign up, right. 
if you think about what the business is on a, on a very basic level, it's an event management company. We just happen to have very unique events for the golf world. Uh, so, right. so we, we've, we've streamlined, um, um, marketing. We've made it easier for our franchises. Uh, we've made it easier for them to spend less time marketing and put the brunt of it on our headquarters team. We have, uh, from a curriculum standpoint, we've made it easier to train coaches. So onboarding is quicker and, and, and less cumbersome and less expensive. So we can get more coaches into the fold. More coaches mean, mean more programs we can run and more kids that we can service. And, and then from an operations standpoint, we've made it so that our, our back-end CRM, CMS system, uh, really, it, it just pushes out information for the franchises. So it, it's less cumbersome, less time to, to operate the business, and they can spend more time growing it. The, and the impact on the industry, I, I, I think we've got a great opportunity to impact golf facilities in the areas that, that we service. That's, those are really going to be the ones that we – that, that we have the opportunity to to impact immediately locally because the more people who get in to get into the game into the sport the more people who we hook the, they're going to have to go to the golf course they're going to want to go to the golf course and we're going to help their operations we're going to get them more F&B more tee times more equipment sales mm-hmm. so it's it, it, it's not rocket science right the more people who play golf the better off the industry is and and it really impacts right. everyone. So we need, we definitely need more scale and replicable programs, along the lines of what you were saying about tennis versus golf and how golf, the whole family, golf is the only sport that you can play that you can have multiple generations playing at one time together. Yep, it's the only sport. Yep. Um, sure, you can shoot baskets you know, with, with, a, with a, a father, son, and grandfather, or a, a daughter, mother, sure. and grandmother, you can, you can certainly shoot baskets, but you're probably not going to, unless it's in an abnormal case, you're probably not going to be playing a five-on-five game or a three-on-three game in half court. Right. You're <laughs> golf. Right. You can go out there, and you can, you can play. You can, you, can, you can compete. You can enjoy. You can play recreationally, but you can get the entire family together. I think you're going to hear more about some initiatives that are going to come out on that. Um, I think mm-hmm. capturing the entire family, that is where the, the economy is headed. That is where people's priorities are headed. They want more together time. They want more fun time. Mm-hmm. And, and golf can be one of the solutions to, to, <laughs> solutions to an opportunity that the, uh, the industry can I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I, I think you're exactly right, and I believe this for a long time as well. I think that, you know, as the family dynamics are, are have changed and are continuing to, to develop and change, I think that, you know, parents, you know, whether it be both parents or single mothers, as an example, are looking for ways to, to stay engaged with their kids. Um, they're trying to find, you know, obviously uh, – other things besides social media to keep them occupied. And I think that, you know, golf is a a great way. They're outdoors. You know, they can enjoy some nice weather uh, and spend some good quality. It's not just, you know, a uh, 30-minute stint. They can go out even if they just played nine holes. You know, it's pretty much assured, um, you know, a couple of hours of of good quality time, and then they can have some fun and a few laughs and and whatever. So uh, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. 
Um, let's, as we, we get close to wrapping things up, I want to give you an opportunity, um, obviously, just maybe to touch a little bit more about the foundation side of it, and then also uh, franchising opportunities, how do people go about getting more information, and what opportunities are available. Absolutely. Uh, appreciate that. Our, you know, the, we, we created a 501c3 nonprofit charitable foundation to go with the programs. We we knew that, especially in a for-profit, you know, the majority of the programs, the majority of the companies in the golf industry are for-profit, but we realized very quickly that even in the wealthiest schools and areas that there were still under-resourced students, you know, Title I schools, uh, Title I wide schools, right. and we wanted to provide that opportunity for any student to, to be able to experience golf and, and our program. So we, we created a 501c3 uh, foundation. We've had some... Uh, We've had some great donors to it. Uh, the HB Foundation um, out of uh, out of the Palm Springs area, Ross Kavingi and his group have done have done amazing things for us and give, given us the ability to give back. So we, we realized that that we had an opportunity to be able to hit every demographic in a geographic uh, in a geographic community, and that was important because the first tee was created really to impact the under-resourced. But as we talked about very early right. on, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that everyone in middle to the upper income are playing. Less than three percent of America plays golf, so we want to make right. sure that anyone who wants to play can. Uh, so, so that's why we created the foundation. It's it's really given us an opportunity to give back. And then, in regards to the franchising, if, if you're an entrepreneur, if you've got a Type A personality. If you've got a passion for golf or other sports, you know, TGA uh, does do seven other sports. It's, it, it's not just golf, but there are dedicated uh, businesses right. for just golf, if that's what you're interested in. Uh, PlayTGA.com, you, you, you can see all the information on the programs. You can get information on the franchising. It's not a very expensive proposition. We've made it so almost anyone can get in. You can spend less than $10,000 and get a franchise. Uh, our, our franchises are seeing great wow. success. We, we we like to say that you're going to get out of it what you put in, and that's not just from your heart and, and growing the sport, but it's also in terms of the amount of money that, that you're going to make and, and the ROI that you're going to get on your business. It's a lifestyle business. We treat every franchise as a family. You can, you can quote me on that. You can you can call any of the franchises. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's, it's really fun to be a part of. It's fun to be a part of on the ground level of, of youth sports. And and really, we are impacting these kids' lives and really paving the way for the future because everybody remembers the first time they played a sport. Everybody remembers how you got into it, who got mm -hmm. you into it, what the situation yep. was, and that's that's what we concentrate on. And so having that positive experience, you know, we, we thank the industry all the time because if, if they don't have a good experience in our programs and if we didn't have industry support, a lot of golfers wouldn't become golfers because they'd have a negative experience yeah. and they'd probably not pick up a club again because in this day and age, there are a million different activities mm -hmm. that kids and families can do. So we, we always thank the industry for their support. Uh, you know, our, our franchises are fantastic, mold our program and understanding that no, no two communities are the same in regards to growing the sport. It, everything is different in, in communities, whether it's weather-based, whether it's school-based, whether it's facility-based, the golf courses. And, and it's really wonderful to be a part of. Yeah, and, it, and it, it creates a little different model too, you know, from traditional teaching. Uh, you know, I mean, most of your pros out there, you know, are, are working at a club or a facility of some sort giving golf lessons, which is fine. 
um, but you have a lot of other uh, things in your curriculum that are different. So it's kind of a, a unique situation for, uh, you know, for the professionals out there that are interested in getting involved with it. Um, you know, it's not just your traditional, like I said, one-on-one -on -one golf lessons. That they're having an opportunity to grow and develop an industry, and that's something that you know a lot of them are passionate about. And so it gives them something different um, than what your traditional golf professional might view. And, and I like that. Um, one other thing that I was going to ask you, and uh, and actually I was interested in your your response, and I, I lost my train of thought, uh, which doesn't happen too often, but. Um, Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Um, where, what principal markets are you in now? Like, I know obviously you've expanded since we talked the last time. Uh, how many states are you in right now? And are you looking at, uh, you know, is there certain markets that you're um, finding are more receptive to it, uh, or you're looking to, to grow into other markets? Well, given we have the ability to teach year-round, um, and and mm -hmm. the, the program that we created, especially at the introductory level in the schools, community centers, churches, temples, we, we really bring the program anywhere. Uh, there really is there's no limit to what we can do in terms of, of the geography. Right now, we're in 29 different mm -hmm. states. Uh, I would say the one oh, wow. area where where we haven't had traction yet uh, is, is the Midwest. Um, it's, mm -hmm. it's certainly on our radar to, to push further. We, we have tremendous, uh, we have tremendous growth in the Northwest, uh, in, in, in the, in the Southern California, Northern California area. We, we kind of make a U around the United States if you look at it that way, but there's still even right. a ton of opportunity in those geographies to, to be able to get a franchise if you're interested we just happen, the franchises just happen to be concentrated in that area. So you're, you're basically, you know, obviously tradition in a lot of the traditional golf markets right now, and you want to get into areas that maybe might not, like you said, the Midwest and things like that, that not that there aren't golf courses, not golf facilities, but it's not your traditional golf markets. I mean, obviously Florida and, and California and, and certain areas, uh, Myrtle beach, that sort of area um, are, are your more traditional golf markets. Um, no, I think that's fantastic. I mean, 29 states, that's pretty impressive. Um, you're, we're more than halfway there. And, uh, because you can not only do, uh, you know, outside, but you can also do inside facilities as well. You can get into the Northeast and other areas fairly easily. Um, you know, not having to worry about, uh, uh, climate issues and, and things like that as much, but uh, obviously, you know, primarily, uh, areas like California and that, uh, because it is a year round. Uh, climate, it's uh, obviously, and same with Florida, is a little bit more advantageous. But um, well, Joshua, I want to thank you for for joining. Me. It's been an interesting discussion, and I'm glad to see that uh, TGA is doing such a great job. And, and as you mentioned, it's not just golf; you have a variety of other uh, sports that the the franchisees can uh, can certainly become involved with. But uh, golf is certainly one of them, and you've made uh, some great strides since we last spoke. And uh, I want to wish you all. Uh, continued success, and uh, I'd love to have you come back anytime. Anytime you've got something that you want to share, just uh, reach out and let me know. Well, I certainly do appreciate that, and 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 thanks for mentioning other sports. Yeah, we're we're not Amazon by any reason, by by any means. We kind of <laughs> we 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 we, we kind of look at what they did. You know, they started out with books, and what they realized is right. they had they they had a distribution platform. And what we came to realize right. about about four or five years ago was that what we had created was a, an infrastructure and a model that could, you know, if you put it in those terms, you know, distribute youth sports programs. 
And that's why we decided to, to branch out. We branched out to tennis with the United States Tennis Association back in the day, and then we added six more sports. So we, we've really created a business opportunity where, where people can, depending on what their passion is, uh, they, they, they mm. can really tailor, you know, here, here's a golf term. They can really tailor made their situation uh, <laughs> based, based, for, with our business based on, uh, based on what their passions are and, and, and the sports that they, you know, maybe even that they've played growing up or that they identify with uh, in today's day and age. Well, and the other thing, it, it affords you an opportunity for crossover as well. If you get somebody that's, you know, maybe gets involved in the tennis and say, oh, they also have a golf program, uh, and vice versa, it gives you um, a, a sort of a like a restaurant, a, a bigger menu to to, to look at um, as a potential consumer or customer that's interested in, in getting involved in the programs. And it's great for kids; it has other activities, and and it's also great for the for the as I said for the franchisee. So I think that was a very smart move on on, on your part to to branch out like that because if you you know, no, I mean, obviously, I love golf and everything about golf, but um, I think in your particular case, you developed a platform that was uh, able to serve many markets besides golf, and I think that was a, a smart move because you're you're ultimately, again, you're going to get some crossover um, either way. So I think that's fantastic. Well, Joshua, again, I want to thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live. It's been uh, a lot of fun having you come back, and as I said, uh, any time that you want to. Uh, come back and and maybe what we can do on, on a future show if you're interested is maybe we can get uh, uh, a couple of your franchisees that have um, you know been involved with uh, TGA for a while to come on and talk about how they've uh, seen their franchises grow and and uh, and talk about some of the things that maybe uh, some ideas that they have to to even uh, you know make it more uh, profitable for them. That would be uh, <clears throat> that would be awesome without a doubt. Sounds good. Uh, well, again, Joshua, thank you very much, and we'll we'll keep a tiger watch and see what happens for the rest of the season. But uh, much continued <laughs> success with uh, with TGA. You've you've done a great job, and and uh, you've got a great business there, and and uh, much continued success. And until next time. Thank you, sir. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye bye. All right, it was my very special guest, Joshua Jacobs, founder and CEO of TJ Premium Sports. And as he said, it's not just golf. Uh, there's other activities. Tennis is uh, one of them. Uh, but it certainly has a great uh, business model, and it's been expanding. And uh, it's just done a fantastic job. Uh, I, once again, I want to thank uh, my uh, gang, if you will, of three that were on earlier, John Hughes, Peter Agazarian, and John Decker from the Coach's Corner panel for joining me this week. Did a great job, as always, and uh, always uh, enjoy uh, my guest interviews as well. Uh, don't forget to tune in next week. Uh, I've got another great uh, panel, and we're going to talk about some uh, more interesting things to help your golf game. Always trying to uh, expand things a little bit. We're, you know, we're certainly uh, more than happy to talk about some instructional side, but we want to talk about some other things as well. It's not always just about instruction. We want to make you think a little bit. So uh, make sure you check out the Coach's Corner panel every Thursday with me here and the guys and gals uh, here on Coach's Corner panel. Uh, and always tune into Golf Talk Live each and every week. Don't forget, next Tuesday, uh, LPGA professional Cindy Miller and I will be back with another show that airs on Tuesday mornings from uh, 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and then join me next Thursday here on Golf Talk Live from eight, uh, from 6 excuse me, to 8 p.m. Central. On that note, God bless everybody. Have a great week, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, 
check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts, or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live Blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.